You are listening to 9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy, and I hope you're doing good. We're here today to talk with my friend Sean McGee about the band U2 and their 1993 album Zeropa. What can I say about U2? Ireland's biggest band, one of the world's biggest bands. They were probably never more famous than when Octung Baby came out. And then they shifted gears and surprised everybody with this weirdo fucking album, Zeropa. And regardless of how you feel about it, I think it's kind of a landmark album of the 1990s for sure. Sean and I, we met at Temple University and we clicked really well. And it was great to reconnect with him because it had been a little while and he's just a fucking delight to be around. So check it out. Thanks for listening. going on <laughs> good to see you as well sir how's it going going great uh, i have the rare opportunity to be in my home uh, without being pulled in a dozen different directions by three children and a wife i feel almost bad that i'm like taking that time away from you oh, i wouldn't have this time otherwise my friend <laughs> uh well if you want we're gonna do this again next weekend right wink wink that's right jackie this is on record wherever you are <laughs> What are you drinking? So this is, I'm ashamed to say, an electric Smurf. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. True story. My wife was doing some uh, mulching or something last summer, and our neighbors walked over and offered her one. She let me try it, and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I don't care what people say. I'm drinking electric Smurfs from now on. Well, you got to tell us what it is. I'm going to tell you what it is. All right, so here we go. Uh, You have to start out with the coconut rum. Okay. I put a dash of white rum in there as well, but some coconut rum, some white rum, some pineapple juice, and then that blue carousel, is that how you say it? I have no idea. Yeah, and then some seltzer. And it is amazingness. Okay. If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. So, tell the good people how you and I know one another, if you would. So, Travis and I met in Philadelphia. I was in the doctoral program. You were, at the time, in the MA program, but then Mm -hmm. you jumped into the doctoral program. 
And so we shared a bunch of classes together. Mm-hmm. And then if I remember correctly, I think it was that semester that we had Dr. Bailey, where that class wasn't in Gladfelter. Yeah, it was in Center City, Philadelphia. Oh man, so just total luck, right? Like just a fortuitous moment. I went to like a presentation of some sort before class. And I saw like the Steve Hausman there, I think. Buddy of ours from the program. Yep. Yeah, and then they were like, all right, we've got to go to class now. You know, I thought it was a little early. I said, what class do you guys have? And they were like, Bailey, we've got to get on the subway or something. Uh-huh. I've been on the subway, whatever it was. And I was like, wait, I yeah. have the same class. I have no idea. Like, <laughs> I'm this creature from the woods. You know, I grew up in the Pine Barrens, man. Like, like yeah. driving into the city is a challenge, right? I, I do not know how to operate or navigate any of the infrastructure that they have there. So <laughs> it was new for me, too. My God, thank goodness I ran into them. And I was able to, like, you know, watch them, you know, buy a ticket. (laughs) You were in that class and we got to know each other like on the rides there, but more often than not on the rides and the walk back to campus. And then that's when we found out we both had, you know, a love for music. We were both in bands. We were both vocalists. And then you came over to my house one day and lost your dog. (laughs) (laughs) That was the last time I ever let my dog out without like immediate supervision. And I'll never forget freaking out. She's passed now. She passed a couple years ago, unfortunately. But uh, I'll never forget just like freaking out, thinking that she was gone forever. And you and me driving around in your neighborhood looking for her. And you're like, well, let's just drive down the road and maybe we'll see her down the road. I'm like, she's a dog. What's she going to do? Take the sidewalk? And then, of course, <laughs> we drive by. And of course, she was on the sidewalk. There's Rooney, the corgi, just trotting along yeah, down the sidewalk, big smile on her face. Like, yeah, freedom. I'm like, get in the fucking car. It was a good night. <laughs> yeah, it was a great night. And definitely, yeah, that's how I remember us becoming friends, too, was just Beth Bailey's class, learning about... It wasn't a cultural history class, but I felt like that was a lot of what she was doing there. Yeah, I I remember, like, the book on the GI Bill and the the, the lesbian gay angle and trying to deny veterans benefits. Yeah, didn't she have us read Gay New York? You know, well, we read, like, 5,000 books in four years, so who fucking knows anymore? But I remember, like, taking the subway and just... You know, kvetching about the class and like finding common ground and all kinds of stuff. And it was funny when I went to Temple, I remember being like, well, I know not a single soul in the entire city, but I will make friends with my cohort, right? And it turned out like nobody fucking wanted to hang out like hardly ever, but you and I did. And that was nice. Yeah, we did. You know, I love that program and those people were all great people. Yeah. That's one of my regrets. Like I was a non-traditional college student. Same. I was a 28-year-old freshman, right. and like I knew that I wasn't going to meet college friends going to night school and working full-time. But I was really hopeful that, you know, since this was such an advanced program and it was such a, like, a, a specific concentration of interests, I was pretty confident that I would come out of there with some pretty good friendships. And they were all great people, but they're all, you know, super ambitious and they're all doing their own thing. And it was like, there was never really the time, you know, it's no one's fault. No, yeah, that's part of it. We did not have uh, hardly any fucking time ever. Even you guys who lived on campus, Mm -hmm. like I used to, not not envious, but I was like, man, they're going to be hanging out and stuff. I have to drive home and go to work the next day. But it was like, you guys were taking more classes than I was because you weren't working. I was working too. That's right. You were, you were, right. But we were reading three or four books a week, right? In addition to writing and trying to dream up original ideas and visit archives and oh my goodness. There was one point I had three jobs, including teaching while I was doing all that. I didn't get a lot of socializing done, but thank God for what was the name of that bar? Not the crazy horse, the something horse. Is that that one that was right on campus? Yeah, it was like right there. Something horse. Oh, I re- no, it was. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about, but like, uh, 
we used to walk by it, I think, when we got dropped. Yeah, it's often where we would end up meeting. You know, that was like the haunt. That was the bar. We went in there a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You've also been like one of the few people that I've, I've kept in touch with regularly, even though you're not a social media guy, but you let me know what you're doing. You'll send me, you know, what you've written or like the podcast you've been on and that kind of stuff, which you want to tell the people what you do or and where they can find your work or anything along those lines? Uh, yeah, so I've had the good fortune this academic year to publish three papers on the Journal of the American Revolution, which is a digital journal that releases one print volume each year. And I had the good fortune of having one of my essays selected for the print volume as well. Oh. And I've been on the podcast twice discussing my research. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it looks like my dissertation was picked up for publication. Fantastic, man. As far as the last email communication I had. <laughs> That's great. I'm excited about it, but I'm still, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. But uh, as far as I know, it's a green light. That's fantastic, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Outside of that, I just keep myself busy, raising my kids, working my two jobs, and I'm trying to just moonlight, you know, as a musician these days. You're making music again? So the last band that I was in, the Black River Kings, I keep in contact with most of those guys. Good stuff. Available on Spotify and elsewhere, I imagine. Check that out. The Black River Kings. Black River Kings. Yeah, man. Uh, we had a lot of fun, but we're all older guys, right? Like yeah. the drummer is an airline pilot, right? So the mm-hmm. one, one of the guys is an entrepreneur. He runs and owns a music store. A couple of us are teachers. One of us is a nurse on an open heart surgery team. So, you know, and this is not bragging by any stretch. This is like, holy cow, none of these people can find the time to be in a room. Sure. You know, it used to be a lot of fun. Like that band started out as an excuse for a bunch of guys in their 30s to get together and buy cheap beer and mercilessly make fun of each other and occasionally right. make music. And then <laughs> we started recording and gigging and it was a lot of fun. But I had these two events occur at the same time. I got accepted into that temple program and my mm-hmm. wife got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't do it all. And uh, yeah. I decided that I was more attracted at that point in my life. Uh, but anyway, the broader point that I was sharing with you is, yeah, a, a little bit. So during the COVID period, three of us, three of the guys from the Black River Kings, we started to write again and started to send files to one another. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and you'll appreciate this as a guy that doesn't have any time in his life. We were thinking to ourselves, all right, so what is our goal, right? Are we going to just record or are we going to play and record? Like, is a live stage in our future? And then, you know, the reality is we are 20 or 30 practices away from a live performance. (laughs) And so we were like, practice. Uh, So we drove all the way out to Tabernacle, New Jersey for a band practice. Uh And when we were done, the guy that I drove out there with, we were both like, this is not in our future. Can't do it. Just don't have the time. Like, I feel the same way, like, about concerts these days. I'll, I'll probably never go to a concert again. What? Never? If I can teleport to a concert, I would do it, <laughs> right? But like an hour, hour and a half getting there, getting into a seat, uh, and then like sitting there while people are, I, I, I don't know, I, I like the experience, but then I just want to be able to teleport back to my house to use my own bathroom, to go to my own bar, right? Oh, Tele- sure. Teleport home, you know, because you're looking at like an hour and 45 minutes of total enjoyment, and then at least that amount of time getting there and back and being miserable. Fuck me. We're getting old, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really sympathize with a lot of what you're saying. My biggest rant, I won't go on the rant now because anybody that knows me knows that this is my rant, but I hate cars. You're talking teleportation, you're very much talking my language. You're talking about sitting at home, hey, I love that too. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very much comfortable here. Jackie takes the kids to Disney each year. She takes one oh, kid okay. to Disney, right? You know who doesn't want to go to Disney? Me. I don't sure. want to be sucked out of my life. I like my life so much that I don't want to leave it, right? And maybe I'm a crabby old curmudgeon, I don't know. 
<laughs> no, I think it's happening to all of us. COVID was like a nice opportunity for me to be like, oh, good. I have even more reason to not oh. be around people anymore. <laughs> and I'm doing the same thing. All the music I make these days is all happening like online. Right. All right, so we are here to talk about U2 and their 1993 album, Zuropa. You described yourself recently that you used to be a U2 super fan or mega fan or some sort of extra fan, uh, which I didn't know that about you, I think. Maybe we've talked to them before, but how did you become a big U2 fan? It wasn't with Zuropa, right? So no, you came. Not. Okay, so like I usually start by asking, like, how did you get into this album? But how did you get into U2 in that case? Like a lot of us, I was like an MTV kid, right? Like mm -hmm. I didn't watch it religiously, but you know, that Joshua Tree record was on television, was on the radio. It was all over the place. Yeah. I remember buying that set at the local James Way. All right. And my God, that record, I became really intimate with not just the first three songs on that record, but like diving deep. That second side is so yeah. underrated. One Tree Hill is incredible. Yeah. I will do a whole deep dive into that album at some point on this show, even though it's not of the appropriate time. I just love it. What a record. What a record. But like U2 is a band that evolves. Very much so. Boy in October, they're good, like light punk records, like punk pop. Yeah. Pop, maybe not fair to say, like Bono's I feel you. Good pop sensibility, right? Yeah. And that culminates, that moment culminates with that record, War. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. War is a remarkable album. Drowning Man might be my favorite U2 song. That has bad on it too, right? No, bad is on Unforgettable Fire, right? So oh, okay. They come out with that next record, and it's like mm -hmm. doesn't sound anything like War or October or Boy, right? It's like this new sort of pop record that has these like really interesting soundscapes, is what I guess we can mm -hmm. call it, right? Like Edge is really like stretching, but the songs aren't as tight as the Joshua Tree. So I feel like that moment in their career really culminates with the Joshua Tree. Like they are experimenting mm -hmm. with these soundscapes, but they're still really poppy songs. Like that record has Bad on it and it has In the Name of Love on it, right? Yeah, but it's not the go-to U2 album. It's not the go. It's still a fantastic raw emotional record. And then they, they yeah. really capture the emotion and the raw performance with the Joshua Tree, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you're a U2 fan, that Octung Baby record, there's like a BCAD, right? There's this yeah. vibe, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you're like an old world like practitioner of Judaism, right? If you if you stopped at like a Joshua Tree rattle and hum and you're like this, you know, new world Christian if you move on, you know, forgive my <laughs> yeah. So here's the story. So I'm in my first band. I'm like a sophomore in high school. Mm -hmm. The band called Last Call. I'm, I'm the lead guitar player in it. And we have to remember where this zoo Oprah record comes in, right? We're living in a world where that grunge movement is hitting, right? Yeah. Naturally, when Dirt comes out, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yep, yep, this is the new Black Sabbath, right? And Pearl Jam or Soundgarden, they can be like the new Led Zeppelin. Like Led Zeppelin was rock and roll for me. And then mm -hmm. like, I diversified my portfolio with the first six Black Sabbath records. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like totally into that grunge movement, of course. Sure. But, you know, the, those U2 songs were inescapable and they were beautiful. Oh, yeah. So the singer that I was in the band with, this guy named Rich Stanton, he had Octum Baby. And uh, I borrowed it from him. And that album blew my mother. There's this moment that U2 goes through. Like, we're talking about Zuropa today. Yeah. But it's like, I feel like there's a trilogy there, right? It's like Octung Baby, Zuropa, and Pop. Because like, like songs that didn't make Octung Baby made it onto Zuropa. And songs that didn't make it onto Zuropa made it onto Pop. Right. They're in this moment, right? And so 
when Octung Baby came out, like that became my favorite U2 record. And I was one of the rare few that was like, okay, this makes sense to me. And so when I got into Octung Baby, I loved all of that dance stuff. I loved all of the club sounds. I loved like the hip hop-esque drums to them. Hmm. But the songs were still beautifully crafted, right? They still yeah. made sense. Mysterious Ways makes sense as a song, right? Who's going to ride your wild horses makes sense as a song. When Zuropa came out, so that's the summer going into my senior year. Okay. They're touring. I saw them on that Octone Baby tour, by the way. Oh, the Zoo TV. Oh, yeah, man. Holy cow. That was a big tour. Yeah, I saw them in the Vet Stadium. That's awesome. Like, there anymore, Philadelphia. And it was like Primus opened for them. Wow. Primus was awesome, but that, that's too big a room for Primus, right? Primus. <laughs> I saw them in a stadium too, and it was, I felt similarly around the same time, actually. Anyway, keep going. So, like, that record comes out the summer that I'm going into my senior year, and uh, I'm working this garbage job at some machine shop. And the first song that I heard off that record, oddly, wasn't even one of the singles. It was Some Days Are Better Than Others. Okay. MMR or YSP was for two local rock stations around here. That was the first song that I heard from that record, and it was awesome and i went out and bought the record and you know jimmy page instructed me on what guitar was right tony iomi instructed me on, on what guitar was but like you know the edge those soundscapes on that record like most of those songs don't even have guitar riffs it's just like he's floating over them mm. i was into that record because i was already into octung baby and you know getting into that record really began to make me think about like the restraints that i had on on my own playing like edge was such is such an imaginative player yeah in the second half of u2's career right like octung baby is their joshua tree and then mm -hmm. maybe zuropa is a little messier like the unforgettable fire is for the early it's still fantastic yeah it's not as tight but it is it's so fantastic don't move don't talk out of time don't think just fine, just fine. Don't grab, don't clutch, don't hope for too much. Don't grieve, don't achieve or grieve without me. Zuropa is so conceptual and bold and unexpected. Not only is it bold, their choices that they're making uh, in terms of what they're releasing is really bold. To make Numb the first single, yes. that's the first song I heard from this album. Like you, I was into Akun Baby and Joshua Tree. I was a little bit younger, which isn't a big deal in our relationship at this point, but like at that age, it was kind of a bigger deal. Sure. I was like not as entrenched in like the older U2. I was just kind of like rolling with whatever because I was still like 12, you know, 13. So when Octung Baby came along, it was very easy for me to transition from Joshua Tree to that. And then Zuropa comes out and they release Numb first, right? Which is like, they're one of the biggest bands in the world when Octung Baby's out. And the world is ready for their next album. And then to choose that song with a different singer, you know, Edge is singing, it's deliberately monotone. It's like a mess in a way like you got that sound of that rewinding cassette tape that just kind of made its way in there there's just like all this all this shit going on which is kind of the theme of the album like hey uh here's a bunch of shit all at once It's really, really 
ballsy. I don't know that it always works because I know that this is not their favorite album as a band, from what I understand, but you can tell they're really feeling themselves at this time and taking big risks at a time when a lot of bands would have been like, okay, now how do we regurgitate? How do we recreate the same formula that we did last time? And they're like, no, we're gonna completely kick the door open and go in a different direction. You gotta respect it. I totally respect it. And I think like, again, I, I hate to keep bringing this up, but like I, I've always been into bands that evolved, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's one of the things that I was attracted to with those Zeppelin records. Like, I think you, uh, The Police is, is another example. Like, synchronicity. Bowie. Yeah, perfect, right, yeah. So it was just an expectation of mine that, like, you don't release the Joshua Tree to because you did it all. Right, right. So that was my mindset, and I have nothing but respect for you two for jumping into that Octong Baby sound. Like, the fly, but it sounds like, what is the <laughs> sound, right? And yeah. I, I love that quote that Bono has, like, Octung Baby is the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua tree. <laughs> I never heard that one. That's great. Yeah. So if you had to pick a favorite song on this album, can you do that? Yeah, I've been wrestling with this all week. Yeah. I struggled more than usual with this album, both with what I found to be the best and what I found to be, like, the most underrated. And what I found to be the weakest, to be honest. I struggle with all three categories. I can't wait to discuss the weakest. <laughs> that's not easy either, because first of all weakest is a relative term because we're oh, talking sure. about an album that doesn't have a weak link on it mm, that's subjective <laughs> there are weakest spots okay okay so my favorite song yeah let's start there so i think that the best crafted song on that record is stay yes away from i think it's the best but it's also the one that you're most comfortable with right it sounds like a u2 song yeah, I believe they had worked on that one like the earliest in terms of what they had brought from Octoon Baby. It feels a lot more conventional, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. If it's not an acoustic, it's a nice, clean electric that has that mm -hmm. competitive riff. So that's probably the safest and easiest one. But my personal favorite on that record isn't that. I think it's Zuropa. Why? That riff is hypnotic. Mm. It sounds like you're on like the most advanced subway speeding off to some bizarre place. I've always really, really dug the mood of that riff. Mm. And again, I, I like that, you know, Bono's vocal performance is really like understated. He's just kind of humming along. That's the one. And, you know, I couldn't have said this in 1993 because I had no idea what the album was about. This is really like their wall, right? I mean, it, it, it's not as legendary, of course, and it never no. will be, but it's a concept record. And I think on many of the points, they were, you know, not intentionally so, but they were sort of predictive. Like that whole record is about the oversaturation, right, of yeah. like your senses. Look at this, listen to this, look at this, look at this, you know, that tour was, you know, there were screens that were just people changing the channel on a TV, right? Like right. not being attached to anything, like instant gratification, you know, not being emotionally attached or connected, not really experiencing the world around you, just turned into like what I call my students today, digital zombies. 
I'm sure they love that. <laughs> But in 1993, though. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. So, like, like right now, like, I said nothing controversial. But we're talking about when we were kids, right? I think mm-hmm. we were pretty fortunate in our, like, ratio of technology versus, you know, other things, right? Like, the Nintendo oh, yeah. 8-bit was there, right? Like Yeah. There was a lot of analog in our life and nature that we're just running around outdoors unsupervised for oh, yeah. days at a time. I'm sure many of your listeners can appreciate this. When I was a kid, I had a curfew. I was not allowed in until a certain time. <laughs> story. That says everything about our generation. Yeah, go outside. <laughs> I too definitely kind of struggle between Stay as being the best song on the album because it's a clear great song. But for me, I got to go with The Wanderer. some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul it's not bono singing but in 1993 i remember it was one of my first cds and i had a brand new cd disc man which was a big deal at the time so now i could listen to cds out and about in the world i remember being like at my stepmom's sister's boyfriend's apartment like underneath his kitchen table because i was still like a young enough age where i was like thinking that that's an appropriate place to hang out (laughs) i remember listening to the album and like being like i don't know about this last song and her boyfriend being like it's the man in black don't you understand you know because i'm like i don't fucking know but it prepped me for american recordings that came out the following year and what turned into a lifelong love of johnny cash so in a lot of ways it was the first johnny cash song i really liked uh, even though, it, you know, he didn't write it, but he did sing it and it very much has his feel. So maybe it's a cheat to pick a, a sort of a Johnny Cash song to be my favorite song in this U2 album. Like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. I went out riding down. Now, Johnny Cash was always a big collaborator, but you don't get a lot of that in today's world or even in the 90s world, these kind of collaborations, especially from such different kind of artists. So I find it like this really cool kind of novelty in music. It's definitely a really like remarkable collaboration. And especially when you consider that band has a real front man, right? Right, very much so. Yeah, he's the voice of, of a generation. Apparently, he wrote that song with the intention of having Johnny Cash sing it. Which he'd done the same with Stay. That was supposed to be for Sinatra, apparently. So apparently, during those Octone Baby moments, there was apparently a party that Bono went to with like some of the surviving Rat Pack. Uh, and they were all drinking whiskey, and they apparently drank him under the table. And he woke up, he thought he peed his pants, and he was like, <laughs> but it turns out that he just fell asleep and he spilled his cup of whiskey. That's funny. He's this punk rock singer that turns into this belter 
that turns into this sort of controlled crooner, like a pop crooner. Yeah. I think that they got close, and it's my understanding, and I could be wrong here, that Edge had written Stay, and it was called Sinatra. Mm -hmm. They were trying to sort of capture the essence of that crooner style, I think. Well, and then The Wander was very specifically written with Johnny Cash in mind. Like, I know that, talk about production team, Brian Eno and Flood. My God, what a production team. (laughs) Landlaw wasn't on that record, but his ghost, he's on that record otherwise, you know, like, they get it. (laughs) Yeah, so I know that they tried to get Bono to sing The Wanderer, but he was, like, stuck to his guns, and I don't know how they got Johnny Cash to do it, but, and I can't help but wonder if this may have helped spur American recordings and, you know, get Rick Rubin kind of thinking, like, oh, okay, like, he can do pop stuff, he can do more, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but it would make sense. What is true, though, is they took a pre-resurgence Johnny Cash mm-hmm. and had him close out a U2 record. That's the key point, yeah. right? Like they took him when he was at the least cool he ever was. Yeah. Yeah. This is an old, virtually dead country singer that comes back with a, like a revision of that Hurt song, right? That's what I'm saying. Like American Recordings came 94. So I cannot help but think that there must be some connection between that resurrection that his whole career had, like the best stuff he ever put out in his entire career and this song, The Wanderer. It seems, you know, causation and correlation right but i mean it seems likely another cool thing and if i'm not mistaken they happen to be recording in the same town that johnny cash was performing in and they sent him a letter or some kind of communication uh one of the other things i really appreciated about this record is i read this years ago in this book called until the end of the world i think that the song title from one of the zocton baby tunes yeah they had become so big and so famous and they had like an endless checkbook from island records and they were touring for that octong baby record and they decided that they were going to record as well and there's this really awesome passage that's really stuck with me since my early 20s Uh, they were recording that record and they just were like you know pushing the deadline back island really wasn't expecting a record they were expecting to record an ep When it Mm -hmm. turned out that they had more material to make it a long play, they were like, well, we're you too. We can keep doing this. And I don't know who said it, and I'd have to go back and read that passage in that book, but someone draws out the wisdom. There are startup bands that are making music as good or better than we're making now, and they're recording on eight tracks or 12 tracks, right? And we have like limitless resources. The purpose, of course, behind that little motivational speech was we need to play and record with some urgency. Mm. And it's reflected on that record. Like Bono's voice is beaten up. They're flying after concerts. They're flying back to, I don't, I don't remember. Dublin. Did they start off in Germany and then when they finished in Ireland? That sounds right to me. Okay. And like Edge is like, you know, doing a concert, flying there, doing overdubs till three or four in the morning, going to sleep, getting on an airplane and flying back somewhere else in the world. Nuts. Yeah, but what's awesome is they're like, they're capturing that. You know, you're saying it's nuts. They're capturing that on record, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even in that post-Joshua Tree moment, Zuropa stands out. It's a little weirder than Octone Baby. It's a little mm-hmm. weirder than Pop. Mm. To their credit, they were like, you know what? Let's capture this weird. Uh, <laughs> and then they did it. And they did a good job. And then they did. So if you have to pick an underrated song on this album, is there one that comes to mind? Okay, you know, full disclosure, one of my colleagues at work, a guy named Sean Wilson, he's the biggest U2 fan that I've ever met. Okay. We had this discussion. I was just talking to him about the underrated song. So he thinks that it's Some Days Are Better Than Others, which is an, a <laughs> remarkable song. My pick, of course, is Daddy's Gonna Pay For Your Crashed Car. Your 
that song, it's like this insane, like heavy metal techno song, if that makes any sense. <laughs> There's a sound in there, right? Like again, mm-hmm. I'm a guitar player, right? I'm thinking about riffs. So like, where's the riff at? This song is heavy without a riff. It's heavy with a sound. Right. Mm. And then that snare drum, whatever they put on top of that snare drum hit, it's so violent. There's a snare drum that sounds like somebody's punching you in the face. You know, it's hard (laughs) to recognize where the key is, right? There's bass back there somewhere doing something. There are guitar parts here and there, but they're mocking the song. Like, Daddy's going to pay for your crash car. And by the way, is one of the few songs on that record that resonated with me when I was a kid lyrically. Okay. When I was in my 20s, I didn't pick up on like the apocalypticism, the full message. I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. pick up on the Wanderer's lyrics. I didn't pick up on the Europa's lyrics, right? Yeah. I, I didn't pick up on that, but I picked up on the materialism. Okay. Right? Yeah, it's like postmodern the album, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, look, we all knew those kids in high school who drove nicer cars than our parents, right? We yeah. all knew those kids, and I'm, I'm not attacking anybody. No, no, no. But when you're an underdeveloped person who's developing into the fully formed version of yourself, you can't help but sort of keep score a little bit, right? That's where you begin to recognize differences, right? Hmm. I'm taller than this person. I'm shorter than this person, right? That person's really smart, right? I have to start reading more. Like, sure. you know, daddy's going to pay for your crash car. Like, we all knew those kids. And, you know, there are plenty of individuals that come into this earth with privilege that aren't flaunting it. And then there are unfortunately others that sort of do. And uh, you're a precious stone. You're out on your own. You know, you own everything in the world, but you feel alone. Like, I get it. I get it. It's a unique song in the album, but it blends in thematically really well with other stuff. Like the woman that's being sung about in the song Stay, for instance, she sounds like she sucks. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that in this album that like it's just these people who are just overburdened with sensations and, and like the uh, commercials and you know all that kind of stuff so it really fits in well with that whole theme of the album that makes perfect sense and it's definitely not one you hear people talk about much right i gotta say for me going back and re-listening to this album because I, I am definitely a youtube fan speaking of full disclosure this is where i phased out like i was on board and in this album i was you know into but again like it was the first time i had a disc man which meant i could skip stuff So I did that some, and then, you know, I tried to stay with them. Like pop for me was just, I could not do it. I was just like, this is, this is just not my genre. Like I just, I was not into it. So I just kind of went further back on their stuff. So I ended up being, you know, an old Testament U2 fan after all. So I had not listened to this in a really long time. And as kind of an old Testament guy, probably the song that is most reminiscent of who they were on this album is to me the underrated song which is the first time it is just a gentle like sweet kind of ballad and to me that's always been like my favorite u2 songs have always been not the rippers and the rockers so much as the more sentimental kind of moments and uh i think it's a really beautiful song that i had just completely forgotten about until i revisited it the last couple weeks that's a beautiful song lyrically fantastic yeah my daddy is a rich man he has a rich man's cloak and he's singing like in rock and roll lyrics you know it's like no one talks this way this is not how anyone talks he's like speaking in this weird patois you know um but it feels like such a rock and roll song but it's the most mellow song on the entire album I'm a brother in need 
I think if you wanted to dissect the lyrics, you know, it gets back to perhaps something less sentimental, right? Like, and mm. I, don't, I don't want to read too deeply into another man's lyrics, but like, I always looked at that as not a private thing, but like a rapidly modernizing society that's becoming increasingly secular. Daddy's a rich man. Obviously, we're talking about like a Christian God. Right. I left by the back door. I threw away the key. Like, And that goes into the Wanderer, again, connecting themes between the songs. But I guess the stuff I kind of fixated on was like the feeling of like first love and then talking about a good friend. Not enough songs about the love between friends. I thought that was really, you know, that segment is very cool. And just the overall vibe. It just hits that right tone, that right mood. And I feel like, you know, if we just imagine a, like just reorienting the lyrical themes, that song could fit on Joshua Tree. Totally. Yeah. And I guess that's why I'm like, eh, that's, that one's for me, <laughs> which is, you know, not in keeping with where you're coming from with this album. But with that in mind, let's get to the big question. Yeah. Is there, can you choose a weakest song on the album? I can. I can. Okay. I'm ready to hear it. I can do that with some confidence. Okay. So my least favorite track on that record, and just before you like in your head strangle me to death, just <laughs> hear me out. Okay. My least favorite track on the record is The Wanderer. Okay. Right. And this is where things get strange. I think it's one of the best written songs on the album. Mm -hmm. It's not Johnny Cash. I feel like if I thought that Zuropa sounded like you hopped on to like the most sophisticated European train to speed off somewhere cool, mm -hmm. that record ends with that cool place that you sped off to was like some shitty karaoke bar. <laughs> they would have done themselves a favor if that like dun, 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 like does it need to be a, a keyboard like it sounds <laughs> awful it sounds so awful the lyrics are great and johnny cash does his thing there's a 2005 live version mm -hmm. that colleague that i mentioned earlier sean wilson showed me the, mm -hmm. to, like for johnny cash's death where bono sings yeah, I've heard about it. I don't, I don't know if I've actually heard it. There's also a rumor, Travis, you might be interested in this. There's a rumor that Locked Away in the Vaults of Island Records is a recording version with Bono singing it. Yeah, that makes sense. But with the same track, of course, it's the same song right. as Bono's performance. It would make sense for it to exist. Yeah, because they couldn't guarantee that he was going to do it, of course. Right. It's the first time, and then Dirty Day, and then it closes out with The Wanderer, and you know, they're setting this mood, it's sort of hypnotic, and then suddenly the world's worst bar band starts playing, right? <laughs> there is like an empty kind of feeling to it. And I felt that way when I was a kid, that kind of tinny oh, karaoke. I hate, it. I hate it. But that being said, not the worst song on the record. Oh, okay. My least favorite track on the record. Oh, because okay. that song can be performed and it can be performed well. And if you check out that 2005 U2 version, it's an incredible and very dark song. Uh, it reminds yeah. me of that Cormac McCarthy, um, The Road. Oh, totally. The Road. Yeah, yeah. man. It's the Fucking road. Yeah, Travis. <laughs> here's to you, sir. Here's to you. Have you checked out his latest two books? Oh, I, I've, I've not read him. I've seen that movie, but uh, I've not I've not read Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, I, I read The Road and I, I read that um, Blood Meridian. Ooh. I tell you, man, I've hardly read shit since the Temple program. You were in the Temple Doctoral program. You'll never need to read anything again. I can never make myself read anything again. It, You've read more than any 10 men combined. 
and it's like yeah if i feel like if i ever read a book again my brain will pop <laughs> <laughs> that said i am reading a book at the moment but i'm just doing it very very slowly so what is the actual worst song on the album then no way around it no way around it zuropa is great right okay numb's fantastic okay i love babyface uh, i love lemon right okay I love it all. I love for the first time. I love some days are better than okay. others. I love You're naming almost every song here. I love Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car. I appreciate the master songwriting in The Wanderer. There's only okay. one left. Dirty Day. God damn it. It's forgettable. Like at least The Wanderer sticks out. And it was Dirty Day is a dirty crime on humanity, is what it is. All right. <laughs> so you feel strongly. Bono, I'm sorry. Dirty Day is a better song than most bands will ever write. But you guys are held to a different standard. And that standard <laughs> is not met. And, you know, you can forgive these guys for thinking that literally everything that they produced was amazing because they were on top of the world and they were you too. That's it. This point in their career, like, it comes across, right? You can feel that vibe. Like, anything we do is awesome and yes. amazing. <laughs> yes. If you go back and, and if you read anything from the band at that time, they were impressed with themselves. Like, yeah. They thought that this was their art rock record. And they're not wrong. It's fantastic. It, yeah. But it just doesn't hold up maybe the way that they had hoped. But where they were, I mean, it'd be hard to overstate. Like, people talk about Nirvana. People talk about, you know, Tupac. And they talk about, you know, a lot of artists from that era and, like, how huge they were but we kind of forget octoon baby in 92 early 93 they were on top of the fucking world they're like the biggest band for a minute that octoon baby record had that what it five it might have had six singles yeah it was ridiculous joshua tree had three singles that you couldn't escape you still can't yeah, yeah the first three saw yeah so that record opens uh, it might be the, the strongest opening of any record ever right where the streets have no name i still don't found i'm looking for and with or without you like yeah okay Single, single, single. You win at life, right? You win at life. <laughs> what did Octon Baby have? It had The Fly. It had Even Better Than The Real Thing. It had One. It had Mysterious Ways. It had Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses. Is there a... Ultraviolet? Wasn't that a single too? Oddly, that was not a single. And just like Some Days Are Better Than Others, the first song that I heard on the radio for Octung Baby was Ultraviolet Light My Way. Because I think I heard that on the radio back in the day. Maybe people just liked it and DJs would play it sometime and it wasn't officially released as a single or something. I don't know why it wasn't. What a great song. They certainly know how to produce singles and albums. And that's one of the funny things about this album is that like these singles, Numb and Lemon in particular, are not maybe the best songs on the album. That said, for me, I actually thought going in that I was going to say that the least good song on the album would be lemon because that was kind of like it's kind of a joke to me the whole the overly falsetto bit that he does there but by the end of that song it's beautiful like it's literally a beautiful track by the time it gets into what it's doing kind of early on it's like well, what is happening but for me i'm actually glad that you said that your least favorite song on the album is the wanderer because my least favorite song on this album is zuropa <laughs> i had mentioned that uh i had a disc man that track felt new to me the last couple of weeks because I'd skip it almost every time I'd start the album when I was a kid. Is it because of that like 15 seconds of noise? At 13 years old, that felt like a fucking eternity. I get it. I get it for sure. I'm just like, where's the music? Click. And I just never had the patience for it. And so I tried to be more patient with it this time. And I certainly liked it better than I did when I was a kid. 
But still, it's just kind of like, I don't know, it feels to me very much like a first song. And in that sense, it doesn't feel like it stands up on its own. It feels like an introduction into an album. And ordinarily, like, I'm not opposed to that. Actually, I really like that in albums. Don't get me wrong. I, I love songs that are like, this could never be a single. Like, this is like a bridge or something to the overall album. Yeah, I guess I just never really had the patience for it. I'm sorry. I know you really like it. Go figure. But now I feel, you feel better probably about saying that The Wanderer was trash. And and I feel better, too. Song is great. Yeah. Song is great. <laughs> that version, you know. You won't even too. give me that. <laughs> <laughs> I would never say that Zero Rope was trash. I don't think that there's a bad song on this album because it's U2. No. But like I said, this is when I did kind of start to tune out. And there's a few songs on here that I think are just, you know, there are reasons why I was like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm on board with this direction that the band is going in. So it's impossible to go back and relive those days because, you know, you know that music is not only subjective, but it's rooted in time and place, right? Like mm, all yeah. of us are guilty of liking songs that we probably recognize as objectively bad songs because they bring you back to a party or they bring you back to a car ride to the shore or whatever, like Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, like sure. not a good song, right? But like a lot of good <laughs> memories, right? Sure, yeah. I always try to convince people to go back and listen to Optum Baby if they were one of those like BC U2 characters. Yeah. You know, I would suggest you give Pop a try. My God, I, I left work early to get Pop, and it is one of my favorite records by that band. It has such remarkable high points on it. I'll revisit. I mean, I tried every album that they put out. I tried the one about the bomb, whatever that title was. Like, and, yeah, when and I, I, found when I was some... done. Pop. I was done with Pop. Like, what? what that was. Pop, yeah, it was your last album. Okay. Like, I appreciated like Elevation and all that you can't leave behind. Like, there's some good moments, but I never went and bought a record again. Like, Pop was yeah, the I got record that I bought. And I loved every second of it. I wasn't even mad that they just like shoved one into my iPhone. I was like, okay, this is going to come up every now and then on accident. <laughs> but yeah, I will revisit Pop just for you, Sean. Holy cow. Just imagine that you're the one band in the world that could just put your album in everybody's cell phone, right? And now imagine everyone's pissed about it. And everybody's mad that they have a free record. <laughs> and you know who loves all that irony? Bono. Oh, I bet. <laughs> what track do you want to use to go out on? Uh, we're going to have to do Some Days Are Better Than Others. Okay, sounds perfect. Now, this is a four-piece, a really strong four-piece, and one of the few four-pieces where I could like name all four members of the band because they're that famous and yeah. like influential and stuff. Do you feel like there's an MVP on this album? Oh, that's a good... Yeah, so... Hmm. I mean, Edge gets production credits. Yeah. I think that he did a lot of heavy looking, but, you know, <laughs> the MVP on that record is not even in the band. It's Brian Eno. No, it's not even Brian Eno. What? There was a character that was like a stagehand or like a guitar tech, Robbie Adams. Okay, who's Robbie Adams? He was given an enviable job of going back and listening to all their sound checks to see okay. if there was any cool riffs or loops that they put oh. together during that Octong Baby tour. That oh, TV. wow. And he's the guy that digs out, like, you're not going to be happy about this, but he digs out the riff for Zeropa, right? I'm not unhappy. It's fine. <laughs> sound check, right? Like, you're edge. You're spinning around the world, you know, a thousand miles an hour. You're in one sound check. You're just fooling around your guitar. And, like, this guy, like, stiffed through. I would imagine it must have been hundreds and hundreds of shows. Wow. And pulled together what he thought were the coolest sounds, loops, and riffs. Huh. Yeah, and then the band used that as source material to write most of those songs. 
No shit. Yeah, man. So if there's an MVP for that record, it's that guy doing all this like legwork. That is super fascinating. Yeah. That is wild. I'm glad you know that. That's funny. I mean, I did the cursory Wikipedia look and that dude did not come up that I saw. That's very cool. feels like the Edges album to me in a lot of ways, but now knowing what you just told me, I, I got to say dude number five, whose name I already forgot. Yeah. Robbie Adams. Robbie Adams. All right. I mean, what a run. Think about this for a second. They hit War, Unforgettable Fire, Joshua Tree. They have a little bridge with Rattle and Hum, and then Octung Baby, Zuropa, and Pop. Holy mm-hmm. cow. What a run, right? <laughs> what a, that's a run. run. But like my MVP for that period, those three records, the dividing line for YouTube fans, my MVP's always been Larry Mullen. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he goes from like this really sort of like, I say this with no like disparaging. He was always like a sort of like, primitive sort of loose drummer that did like really imaginative stuff that just worked right Mm -hmm. and he transitions from 1987 to 1991 he turns into one of the slickest drummers out there oh i'm glad you brought him up because i feel like he's not someone that has this super specific style that he just redoes over and over again like a lot of musicians of every kind do he seems like someone who really approaches each song very much on its own and then provides what is best for the song rather than like whatever his ego tells him hey this is what i feel like doing that's very selective it shows a lot of restraint yeah and restraint you know as a musician you're aware of this like most people who are in bands are not musicians they're instrumentalists right they want you to know that they're playing Yes. I'm guilty of this just like everybody else is. It took me a long time to recognize that a musician listens mm. and an instrumentalist plays. Mm. Sometimes you have to recognize that your greatest contribution to the collective sound is to not do anything, right? That, that takes a subversion of your own ego that is hard to do, especially when you're one of the four dudes in one of the biggest bands in the world yeah. at the peak of your career. And that guy is not known for drum fills. He is known no. for, again, those loose, sort of savage drum lines from those earlier years, or just this tight club hip hop esque drum lines mm. with no fills, like here and there. Like just very a- rare. Yeah, he's very mechanical. You don't get a measure by the Larry Mullen, right? <laughs> you get yeah. like a couple hits. Oh, there was a slight variation. Yeah, yeah, that guy's great. You been uh, listening to anything else you want to share with us before we head out? I am a creature of habit. Uh, I'm a a pretty progressive thinker on most fronts, but when it comes to music, I like calcified a long time ago. I've been getting into like those uh, Robert Plant records. Okay. Plant and... um, Plant and Page. No, is it Alison Krauss? Is that her name? Oh, I didn't know they teamed up. Bluegrass singer. Yeah, yeah. She's great. Oh, they have two records out there. Fantastic. It's more recent. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's cool. I didn't hear about it. Yeah, 2009 and 2020 or 2021 were the two records. Oh, okay. I've been getting into a lot of Gillian Welch. She's fantastic as well, but also like Roots Americana stuff. Okay, yeah. So if it's anything new, spoiler alert, it doesn't sound new. (laughs) There's a few select bands that I've been listening to for years. I'll listen to their new albums, but for the most part, you know, everything kind of stopped around 2010 for me. You got about 15 years on me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you've seen the name of my podcast there's certainly an era i'm stuck in yeah <laughs> hey thanks for doing this man hey man you guys it was great talking to you man i want to do this again by the way i want you to come back yeah man
and that is me and Sean talking about Zeropa from YouTube. If you're a regular listener, you might be wondering, what happened to the trivia slash would you rather whatever question at the end? I fucked up. I just kind of uh, dropped the ball on getting that together on time for him, and then I tried to like do it on the fly, and it came out awful. So it's been cut out. Sorry. Sorry, Sean, especially. But thank you, Sean, for doing this. It means a lot to me, and it was great to talk to him again, and I do believe he's going to come back on, I hope. And also, Sean, I, I, I did give Pop a try. I tried. I tried. What can I say? Also, I want to give out a shout out to this dude, Bill, that kind of played a role in helping me and Sean become closer friends. There was one year in particular that was my birthday. Um, I was like turning 36, I think, or something around there. And I knew nobody had nothing going on. I mean, I was new to Philadelphia. And Sean and this other guy, Bill, whose last name is escaping me, Wagner, Warden, Warren, Warner, I'm not really sure. But he was a great dude and a generous host because he had me and Sean over that evening of what happened to be my birthday to work on a project together for that class that we mentioned and had a great evening with him. It was great. Best to Bill wherever you are. One last note about you two. They get this weird flack, you know, uh, maybe in part because of this album coming out at the top of their fame or maybe because of the alluded to iTunes album that everyone got, whether they wanted it or not. I don't know. They become like a convenient punching bag in pop culture. But people clearly like them, including me and Sean. And another band that people clearly like, including me at least, that released an album in 1994 that maybe someone out there would like to come on and talk about is Dave Matthews' band Under the Table and Dreaming. Satellite in my eyes Like a diamond in the sky How I Underrated album. Underrated band. I don't care what the fuck you say. I don't care what the fuck you say. Dave Matthews has some really good stuff and some really cringy fans. Maybe even including me. What can I say? It took me years to come around on Dave Matthews for the record. I made fun of Dave Matthews' band for decades. And then one day went, huh, I like it. Anywho, that'll be uh, the end of this. If you want to come on the show and talk about Dave Matthews' band... That would be cool. Or you could talk about any other album that you want that came out in 1993 or 1994 that I haven't already done an episode on. Just give me a shout. You can reach me at 9394podcast at gmail.com. That is 9394podcast at gmail.com. It was indirectly pointed out to me that some people were like trying to email me and putting hyphens and quotation marks and all. No, it's just 9394podcast at gmail.com and on all the social media Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and goodbye.
9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy, is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.